How are we doing this evening? I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Nahum, please. Nahum, as we continue our study in the Minor Prophets. The book of Nahum this evening as we move our way through the Minor Prophets. As we come to our study this evening, would you join me please in a word of prayer as we have an opportunity to word our prayer. Would you bow with me please? Our Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to gather this evening, to sing together, to look into the Word of God and to be challenged by a powerful book in the Old Testament, probably one of the most of the poetic of these minor prophets. In a sense, a literary genius in writing this, and so help us to understand and appreciate that, but moreover, the message that you conveyed to us through Nahum tonight. And so as we come to this message and looking at Nahum and then on into Habakkuk, may our hearts be challenged and encouraged by the Word of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin with Nahum tonight, three chapters, brief book. The message for today, his message was to the nation of Assyria to repent. He devoted this whole book to the collapse of a great empire, the empire known as Assyria. If you remember, we've been studying through the Minor Prophets and telling us as we've gone through that right next to these prophetic books, we have to bring alongside of them the, the kings and the chronicles, the leaders of the nations of Israel and Judah, the 12 tribes as they moved into the land and then were under the leadership, as you remember, of First King Saul for 40 years from 10... 50 to 1010 BC, then the next 40 years under David from 1010 to 970, and then from 970 to 930 BC under Solomon, David's son. In the 120 years comprise what we refer to then as the United Kingdom. When Israel, as a nation of its 12 tribes, was at the largest in its united strength that it would ever experience. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, would become the next king, young and stubborn, and wouldn't listen to the counsel of wiser, older men. And as a result of taking the heavy taxation and the building of the army and many of the other of the things that Solomon had done for many years that grew weary on the people. After a period of time, the people came to Rehoboam and said, please lighten up in our terminology, and he wouldn't listen. And as a result, in 930 B.C., the nation of Israel split into two parts. The northern ten tribes of the twelve became known as the nation of Israel with its capital in Samaria, ultimately. Its worship centers at Dan up north in Bethel or Bethel in the southern part above Jerusalem. The southern two tribes formed one nation known as Judah, and it consisted of two tribes, the tribes of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah with its worship center at Jerusalem. The difference between the two is the northern ten tribes named after, taking the name Israel, would have its own calendar, its own worship center, and its own priests. And then the Judah, the nation that was 
worshiping still at Jerusalem, would retain the old calendar that had been practiced for centuries and worshiping under the priestly line from Aaron on through Levi and on. But the two nations then moved apart from each other, carried on 19 kings of the north, 19 kings of the south. Not one righteous king out of 19 in the northern nations. Six righteous out of the 19 in the south. They would not listen, though God brought the prophets and the major prophets. You would hear the names like Isaiah, and you would have Ezekiel later, Jeremiah, Of the minor prophets, the book of the twelve. These prophets would preach, the fifteen of them would speak and preach to the nations of Israel. Some would preach to Judah. Eventually Israel would last from 930 until 722. And in 722 B.C., God would bring the Assyrians. Under the leadership of Asher Banner Paul, they would come and they would take captive the people of the north, and they would bring in foreigners, and they would carry off the Israelites, and so they would commingle the people, and the ten lost tribes would be dispersed among the entire Assyrian empire. The nation Judah will continue on for about uh, another century and a half till 586 B.C. And finally, God would bring the Babylonians through under Nebuchadnezzar. They would burn Jerusalem, destroy it, and carry the people off into 70 years of exile, a 70-year captivity. And while that captivity is going on, Daniel would be writing in Babylon, talking about uh, how long will we be here? And then they would finally return. And then the prophets Ezra and Nehemiah would preach upon the return. Uh, Just an overview of Israel's history. Why all that? Because this is the only book of those minor prophets as such that's actually preached to a Gentile nation, in a sense. But it's really a message for God's people. But it would be sung, as it were, against Assyria. You see, there was another prophet that had gone to Assyria as well and preached. Who was his? His name was? Jonah. Jonah earlier, 150 years before this, had preached and had gone to the city of Nineveh, capital of the Assyrian Empire. And the nation, the Assyrian Empire, through the preaching of Jonah, repented as a nation. And God then spared them. Nineveh, by the way, is the modern city we know in Iraq by the name of Mosul, okay? And a lot of fighting's taken place there the last decade or so. And soldiers who've been stationed there and in that region of the world, uh, oftentimes when they have opportunities to take pictures of the sites, the excavations, etc., these are ancient biblical cities that you'd read about in the text. But we are now tonight talking about Mosul, talking about Nineveh, of that work. Now, as we come to our notes, there is a message for us today. If I can move through this passage, again, uh, looking at the book of Nahum, following with me, I'm going to read from the book for just a moment. Chapter 1, verse 1, the oracle of Nineveh is what it's called, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. 
A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. And for that reason, we have entitled the study tonight, The Prophet of God's Holy Vengeance. And he reserves wrath for his enemies. Now, he's created all the nations of the world. Why would he call people that he has formed and created his enemies? Notice verse 14. The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave for you are contemptible. He's going to say to the Assyrians. Why? Two huge sins. One, idolatry. Two, inhumanity. They worship false gods And number two, they were perhaps the cruelest nation that God's people had ever encountered. Chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses, the countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies, all because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorcerers, sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her Sorceries, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And so God says, you and I are at odds. You need to repent. And so as we look at this message for today, if I can spend just a few minutes here, he's going to devote, Nadam will, his whole book to the collapse of the great empire Assyria. His message is to delivered to the Assyrians concerning divine judgment upon them, but it also is a message for us today. And by the way, at this point, the northern tribes have been carried off. They're gone. All that exists is Judah, the southern two tribes. The north is under now the Assyrian Empire. And as this book is read, no doubt the people of Judah, God's people, are going, yes, let them have it. Let the Assyrians have it. And then God says, if I'm going to judge them for their sins, judgment better begin at the house of God. And so it really is a warning to Judah. And that's why it's found in the book of the Twelve. All right? So with that in mind, his message then is delivered to Assyria concerning divine judgment upon them. And he brings out this message by a twofold charge. And I want to spend just a few minutes on this because then I'm going to take us into a parallel study that we're going to spend two weeks on. And as we look at this, he brings out this first message. It's called what I label as a reminder or a rehearsal of divine judgment sovereignty. And why a reminder? And let's set the stage real quickly, some background here. The prophet who is writing this is Nahum, an Elkishite in the city between Jerusalem and Gaza. His name means comfort, comfort them. 
And he wrote actually one of the finest poetic books in all the Old Testament. In a sense, he's a literary genius. The only other thing quite like this is Psalm 119, where you take the Hebrew alphabet and what we call verses or stanzas, each one begins with a different one, an A, a B, a C, a D, an E, and an F. And so you have this acrostic going on all the way through this book. And it's, a, it's almost like singing a song. It's a poem as such. Now, the period of his ministry, notice as we talk about the authorship and date, the book is named then after Nahum, and within the book of the twelve, as the minor prophets were called, Nahum is one of the six books that does not have a clear historical date fixed with it. However, we estimate the book to be written about 650, 75 years or so after the carrying away of the northern ten tribes. And the date can be fixed by inferences made about the fall of Egypt to the Assyrians. You read about that in chapter 3, as well as a coming fall of the Assyrians, which will occur in 612. So sometime between there, this takes place. Thus, it's about 150 years after Jonah had preached to Nineveh, and after they had repented and turned to God. But somehow in that 150 years, they had forgotten all about those great revivals that took place in America during the 1830s. And so by the time we get to the 21st century, that's long gone in their minds. Okay? Nahum is one of the non-standard prophets in that he does not follow the typical three-part outline that most of the other minor prophets did. You're living in sin, repent. No repentance, then judgment. Thirdly, there's a better day coming, though. So repent... Be judged. Number three, take comfort. God will restore you in the future. That's how all the minor prophets seem to be unfolding. This one doesn't. And that's because he preaches against Nineveh. Notice about seven lines down, three lines under the purpose. The capital city of Assyria and not against Israel or Judah. Nahum is called then to deliver a message of judgment on a nation that previously had been given revelation of the true God. The Assyrians with their capital at Nineveh were the ones addressed in this message. They had heard about the true God through the ministry of Jonah, and since that time they were sinning in spite of the light of revealed knowledge, sinning in the areas of cruelty and idolatry, inhumanity, all right? Now, with that in mind, Assyria is at the height of its power. And if we can turn a couple of maps on here, you will see different countries that you would hear. Here's Israel and Ammon, Moab. We've talked about them. Here's Assyria. As you look at Assyria up at the northern, the top part of our map, and then Babylon way over here. Let's go to the next map if we can. And you'll see here this green, this is the Mediterranean Sea. Israel is right here. Just that little strip of land is Israel. Judah right there. Jerusalem is right there. This area all the way around, all the way down, even into Egypt, all of this is the Assyrian Empire at its height. Okay? This area right here is modern-day Iraq, right in here, right up through there. Nineveh is right there where Mosul is. Okay? Turkey would be here. Syria would be here, Jordan right there, Lebanon. This is now Iraq, Pakistan, and Kuwait down here. Uh, but, uh, we're going to look at another map in just a couple of minutes. 
Actually, let's go there right now for just a moment. Next week, we're going to be talking about the book of Habakkuk, and you'll see this area here called Chaldeans. Chaldeans were a small, actually a small nation at one time. This is where Abraham came out of. Remember Ur of the Chaldees? This is on one end of Iraq, or what you and I know today as Kuwait, all right? Northern area of Kuwait. This would be the Kuwaiti area right in this, right up in here, Yemen, Kuwait, right in this area here. That's the Chaldean Empire. The Chaldeans would actually eventually conquer and the whole nation would become known. They would take over the Babylonians, but we refer to them in the Bible oftentimes when you talk about them because they just assimilated as one people, would become known as Babylon or the Babylonians, and their empire will, they will take over the Assyrians. And then they will conquer, and that'll be the world-dominating power. Let's go back to the other map now, Assyria, if we can. The Assyrian Empire conquers the world. Assyria was at the height of its power, extending its control over the kingdom of Judah. After the events in the book of Jonah had taken place, Assyria had risen to power and dominates the ancient Near East, extending from Egypt all the way across. But Yahweh used the Assyrians, and this is very important, to judge the northern kingdom of Israel. But throughout the earlier prophets, he regularly proclaims judgment on the Assyrians as well. They're going to become an instrument in the hand of God. Whoa, 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 that raises a huge question. We're going to spend 25 minutes on this evening. Why would you use them? You know, how can God use evil for good? is the question some people will ask, okay? We'll ask that one, and uh, we'll deal with that. The Assyrians were noted for being a cruel empire, and I was going to bring some readings on them tonight, and I decided for sake of time we're going to actually go in another direction. It's kind of stuff that you can leave either for junior high guys or we can use in seminary and talk about it and take the whole class. They were cruel. And at their peak, under the emperor Ashurbanipal and Ashurbanipal II during Nahum's day, in his records, Ashurbanipal boasts of much wickedness such as tearing off the limbs of victims alive. Hey, by the way, when it comes to crucifixion and some of those punishments, it would be the Phoenician people would develop what we know as the practice of crucifixion. They had actually learned that from the Assyrians. And it wasn't on a cross, they were impaling on spikes. Tearing limbs off of victims, putting out others' eyes, impaling victims on stakes, boiling others in tar, flaying people while alive, severing heads, putting them in baskets, and then taking them to their relatives or their other cities and then lining up the baskets and then displaying them and telling them, we give you 24 hours. If not, this is what's going to happen to every one of the men in the city. People would surrender and they'd promptly go and do it. And so, uh, just a cruel nation, and their cruelty reached epic proportions, and so they were feared. And for that reason, God said, when I was using you as an instrument, this is not what I intended. You will be judged. Okay? So, a reminder of divine sovereignty, these people had lifted a fist against God. And so the purpose of the ministry of Nahum was to tell of the execution of God's judgment on Nineveh, this bloody city. Chapter 3, verse 1, as we already read, woe to the bloody city Nineveh. So Nahum begins with a reminder of God's sovereignty. And why do I call it a reminder? Because Jonah in 785 to 775 
150 years before, had turned the people to God, and now they forgot and they took him for granted. And God says, remember, remember. And so it's a reminder of a remembrance of something that I had been gracious and merciful to you in the past. And they thought they were in charge. Look at what we've done in our empire. Look at what we can do. And God says, you need to understand who's really in charge behind the curtain in world history. And so he speaks then of this great God, his person. Remember me? You've met me before, 150 years ago. Remember who you are dealing with? And so in respect to his person, God talks about that he is a holy God. Chapter 1, verse 2, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. And so, therefore, God is a God who they are against. He is jealous of his honor. He is an avenger, meaning you will not get away with it. He is full of wrath toward those who are cruel toward others and unwilling to acquit the wicked. Chapter 1, verse 3, The Lord is slow to anger, great in power, and will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way. The clouds are the dust of his feet. He is full of power then. He rebukes the seas and makes it dry. He can dry up rivers. Mountains quake, verse 5, because of him. Hills can dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. That's the power of God. And when it comes to sin, he becomes indignant. In other words, who can stand before his indignation when God says, that's enough, too far? Who can endure the burning of his anger against those who abuse people? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. But he's a merciful God, slow to anger and good. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, full of compassion, full of love when people repent. And he becomes a stronghold then to them who know enough to trust in him. Those who take refuge in him, verse 7. And as you look at him, this is the kind of God we could deal with. He is sovereign. I am in control. I am a holy God. And in my holiness, I know sin when I see it, and I will deal with it. And I am merciful. Notice as we read about then in respect to his power, he says, I have power over nature. We've already read that. I have power over man. Let me read verses 8 through 12. But with an overpowering flood, he will make a complete end of its sights and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Whoever you devise against, whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Like tangled thorns and like those who are drunken with their drink, they are consumed. From you has gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus says the Lord, Though they are at full strength, and likewise many, even so they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. So now I will break his yoke bar from you and will tear off your shackles. The Lord has a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. It's over with. 
Why does he say this? Is God boasting? No, he's telling them to repent. And chapters 2 and 3 then deal with a rehearsal of divine judgment. Why do I call it a rehearsal? Because it's actually prior. It's like a dress rehearsal to the actual event that's going to come of what's headed your way. What's headed their way? Well, he says judgment. I'm going to restore the splendor of Judah, and I'm going to judge you. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. The gates of the rivers are open. The palace is dissolved. It's fixed. She's stripped. She's carried away. Though Nineveh is like a pool of water through her days, now they are fleeing. Stop, stop, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold, for there is no limit to the treasure. Wealth from every kind, but she is emptied. She'll be laid desolate. She will be laid waste. And so judgment will be thorough. It's going to be terrible. We could jump to chapter 3, verse 6, where God then says, I will throw filth on you and make you vile, and you will be a spectacle and shrink away. So chapter 3 then talks about this terrible judgment, inescapable judgment, deserved judgment. Chapter 3, verse 19, there is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you, for on whom has not your evil passed continually? A wicked nation. As I look over Nahum, the apparent purpose was to speak against Assyria. But I believe the secondary reason was for Nahum to speak against Judah and to tell this nation, God's people, to get not only comforted, but you know what? Check yourself. Check yourself at the door. You see, something very important. If you read biblical history at this time, the king Manasseh is on the throne in Judah. From 695 to 642, Manasseh is going to be on the throne. And after him, his son Ammon, A-M-O-N, will rule from 642 to 640. Manasseh is the most evil of any of the kings when it comes to cruel punishment, even among his own people in Judah's history. And his son Ammon just kept things right on going. His grandson, by the name of Josiah, remember the teenager? will come to the throne and will turn everything around from 640 to 609. And while God is telling Assyria of its atrocities, Judah, I'm sure, is saying, praise God, let them have it, they deserve it. And glad it's not us. I'm glad we're on God's side. But God was saying, Judah, take this as a warning. You need to repent. If I can do this to Assyria, I'll do it to you too. And yet, they laughed at him, and they mocked him. And when Jeremiah preached, they put him in a cistern, and they would lower him down into a a cesspool, where all you could do is a cistern, a large cavernous area filled with mud and waste, and he would stand up to his armpits in it. And then they would take him out, Tell us what God says. He'd preach against them. They'd put them right back down in there and let them just stand and live in it. Because they wouldn't listen. They wouldn't repent. And God says, 
I judge the nations. And I'm warning you, take heed to yourself. Okay? And that's the reminder that comes through Nahum for us. They forgot God. Manasseh did, Second Chronicles 33. If you want to write that down in your notes, this week sometime read Second Chronicles 33 on Manasseh and his horrible spiritual life. Now, what I want to do this evening is, if you take one of the commentaries, for instance, on Nahum, and, I, and I'll open it up on the prophecy, only... I noticed this this week, and when I was studying several weeks ago, again for a minor prophet series, you open up to chapter 24 of the message of the prophets by Daniel Hayes, and when you come to chapter 24, where every one of the other prophets is dealt individually, you come to this one, and Nahum and Habakkuk are actually together. Now, not that you need to see it from the distance or anything, but it's like, why is he putting Nahum and Habakkuk together? Well, in these two books, something very intriguing takes place. In both the book of Nahum, God preaching against and speaking about Assyria. And then when we get to Habakkuk next week, what God tells Habakkuk is Habakkuk is watching the sin of Judah. And he goes, how long, O Lord? And God says, I'm going to deal with it. How? I'm going to bring the Babylonians in. So his one first question, Lord, I don't understand why you don't do something in a nation where abortion takes place and crime takes place and people just pay no attention to God. Could sound like America or any other nation today, couldn't it? And how you can allow this in Judah And don't deal with it. And he tells the prophet, I know what's going on and I'm going to deal with it. And I'm preparing my executioner for the judgment, my judge, to come and I'm sending the Chaldeans, i.e. the Babylonians. To which Habakkuk goes, now I don't get it. How can you use the Babylonians in 586? How can you use Assyria in 722? And then he explains to Habakkuk, I have a purpose to what I am doing. And when it is all done, you will see the good for the... Oh, and by the way, I am judging. We'll judge Assyria. And I will judge the Babylonians. And then the last chapter of Habakkuk, completely different message. We'll look at all that next week. Somewhere in the midst of that, you and I have got to ask the question, okay, how can a loving God do this? Now, if you ask that question, how can a loving God allow suffering and evil, you won't be the first ones because that's the age-old question probably the hardest question we'll ever deal with as we interact with unsaved people, unbelievers, and even as people just try to walk through the wing of Duke Medical Center and go to the cancer ward, the pediatric cancer ward. How can God allow this? Why does he permit it? It doesn't actually sound that way. It goes, how can a good God 
allow people to suffer. And for that reason, what I want to do tonight is to introduce it, and then next week to complete it, and then to wrap up our study with Habakkuk. Tonight, though, we're going to be dealing with the topic, then, if God is love, then help me with a couple of questions, all right? Let me take you through a couple of things here on this, and we'll go about 20 minutes, and then we'll close this evening. And as we, I'm going to read the first introductory parts of it, turn to the next page, talk a little bit more. But before we even deal with this, what the prophets are talking about is God and understanding how God thinks. That's a really important topic. And that's what Nahum, that's what Habakkuk are going to deal with. God, what are you doing? Why? I don't understand you and, uh, and, and, and how your methods work. So he explains those topics to them. So let's begin here. If there's one word in the Bible we wish we could change, no doubt it would be found in the epistle of James. If you remember in James 1, 2, where he wrote, "'Consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials.'" How hopeful it would be had James used the word if instead of when. However, James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says trials will come. It's not a matter of if. Every one of us will experience them. They're inevitable then. It's not just if they come but when. Sorrow, suffering, difficulty are a part of life, everyone's life. And the question the prophets ask now is nearly well, it's 26, 2700 years old. How can you allow this? And we're still asking it. Everyone will encounter pain, suffering, evil. The question then for us as Christians is not, will I experience suffering, but rather, how will I respond when it comes? I love Stephen's line. I footnoted it there. Remember what he said a few weeks back? We cannot choose our crosses, but we can choose our responses. There are two ways to approach the problem of evil, as it's called in theology books. First of all, and by the way, notice something here. Apologist, theologian John Frame, in his book, Apologetics to the Glory of God, says this, the problem of evil is perhaps the most serious and cogent objection that unbelievers have brought against Christian theism or against the Christian God. And again, he says, the problem of evil is probably the most difficult problem in all of theology. And for many atheists, it's the Achilles heels, the Achilles heel of the theistic, those who believe in God, their worldview. Second paragraph now. There are two ways to approach the problem of evil. One, we can wrestle with it what we call philosophically, or you can deal with it emotionally. Both approaches end up addressing it theologically. The philosophical, and oftentimes it's called the logical problem of evil. Then the other one is called oftentimes the personal problem of evil. And so as you read about it in theology books, the whole topic falls under an umbrella. I'll teach you, if you haven't seen the word before, it's the word called theodicy. Whenever you come across it, theodicy, it's the idea of God allowing evil, suffering, Theodicy is simply a defense of God's stated character in the Bible. In other words, if God is love, then how can he? Against the charge that he should not permit bad things to happen. How can a God of love allow such things? The, what we call the personal, emotional, or individual approach is simply our effort to formulate a reasonable response. What do I do when it happens to me? 
But because of suffering, pain, calamity, strikes people of all ages and stations in life, and it seems unfair when it happens, the challenge is raised against God. Why does a good God allow such things to happen? And the problem intensifies when he says in the Minor Prophets, I am sending them. Okay? What we're going to do for a minute tonight, and, uh, and I'll probably then ask you to read some things, and what we need to do a little bit of theology background. Next semester, for instance, in seminary, as part of our courses, uh, we enter the realm, and it's even part of the latter part of this semester on God the Father, but we speak about then the attributes of God. Now, what do we mean? And, and you hear that term, and usually when you hear the word attributes, and you hand someone, well, I'd like to read on the attributes of God, and you hand them Stephen Sharnock's massive tome. It's a two-volume set of books about that thick, just probably the best in the English language on the attributes of God. And reading them, it's, it, they're beautiful, they're wonderful. It's a little bit like eating shredded wheat without milk, okay? Uh, and I mean, you've got to chew on this one a while, all right? How many of you have looked at, ever seen Sharnock's piece on this? Anybody at all familiar with them? They're, they're a great tome, and you can read more on the attributes than you wanted, or you can pick up a very small paperback that'll just soar your hearts and uh, gets the same ideas across by A.W. Tozier, okay? The knowledge of the holy. And it's just a small piece, but you ought to read it in your devotional sometime. I've cited that for you as well. But let me, for a moment, let's do a theology lesson. And uh, this is the area I love to deal with anyway, since that's my doctoral area. But let's talk, let me read something by Millard Erickson. Millard Erickson, theologian, writes this. When we speak of the attributes of God, we are referring to those qualities of God that constitute what He is, the very characteristics of His nature. What's God like? The attributes are qualities of the entire Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The attributes are permanent and intrinsic qualities which cannot be gained or lost, changed, diminished, Although our understanding of God is undoubtedly filtered through our own mental framework, His attributes are not our conceptions projected upon Him. They are objective characteristics of His nature. It is better to conceive of the attributes of God as His nature, not a collection of fragmentary parts or an addition to His essence. Thus, God is love. God is holiness. God is power. These are but different ways of viewing the unified God. God is richly complex, and these conceptions are merely attempts to grasp different objective aspects or facets of His being. How do you know about God? How do we know God? There's two ways to know God. What are they? How does God reveal Himself? One. One, His Word. Creation. Let's put them in the two categories. So we can know God through nature. And the reason is God has left. If God is the creator and you mold something, let's say a clay pot, as I finish, unless I then smooth it out, I can sometimes leave my what? Fingerprint. And so I can leave my mark, as it were, right? I leave my You ought to see something. Now, the problem with nature is what? Some things have happened over the course of history, okay? 
And so you can look at, and by the way, when we talk about knowing God through nature, we talk about two aspects of God revealed in nature. One, all of creation. And number two, what? I heard it. Not only did he create all the stuff, but he created man, us. And so you can study, um, you should see the fingerprint of God by looking at creation. And number two, looking at something that was made in the image of God. Okay? The imago dei, the image of God. Now, there are people who believe there it is. That's how you can know God. Look at nature, look at creation, and look at man. Now, tell me why that's not going to work so well. What is it? We are fallen, and when man fell, it affected nature. And so, one, man is fallen and flawed. Nature, Genesis chapter 3, has been changed. And not only that, Genesis chapter 6, there's a whole lot else that's taken place in our world, hasn't it? Called a what? Flood, okay? So it's pretty tough when you look at it. But there's something else. The fall, because man is fallen, our eyes are what? Towards truth. Blinded. So we kind of see what we want to see. We don't see well. So if you're going to know about God, and if we're going to then try to describe God from a flawed man looking at a flawed creation, our idea of God is probably going to be flawed, all right? It's called theology from below. Instead, there's a way to do theology from above in that sense, and that is we can know about God because he has revealed, he has told us what he is like. That's called special revelation. So you have natural revelation, which is nature and mankind, flawed, fallen, okay? Darkened, depraved, deadened towards God. So you have natural revelation, or what's called general revelation in that sense, and you have special revelation. In other words, God talks. God reveals. God tells us. And you could really have a great image of God if he showed up. And he's done all of that. Okay? So he's been here. He's talked to us. He's written to us after he's gone. And we're holding on our laps then the mind of God revealed, not the totality, but he's actually told us what he is like. We then, as we read what he has told us what he is like, we can then, from our limited understanding, attribute to him then certain characteristics of when people ask him, well, tell me what he is like. That word alone is a simile or a metaphor. Well, he's kind of like this. What's he like? Well, he's good, merciful, benevolent, loving, just, holy, in all those things, he's powerful, he's everywhere, he knows everything, all right? And, we, and I can keep on going with things. Those are called his attributes, his characteristics. 
Now, real quickly as we talk about that, notice on page 2 in the middle, the various attributes of God are not component parts. He's not a little bit part of this. Each describes love, for example, is not a part of His nature. God is completely what? He doesn't love sometimes. He's completely love. While God may display one quality or another at a given time, sometimes it seems like He, if we read Nahum, He's judge. He's just. No quality is independent of or preeminent over the others. All right, number two, God is more than the sum total of His attributes. When we have listed all those attributes, we can glean from Revelation, you haven't described God fully. And by the way, there even may be more attributes. Okay? Even when we say we have a complete list of all of God's perfections, you and I couldn't understand the full meaning anyway because we see through a glass what, as it were, darkly, dimly, For finite man, my mind cannot comprehend an infinite God. I can't do it. Remember, once before we talked about that in here, it was a year ago or so, we were talking about God. And there are some things that just sort of fry out my mind. Yesterday, I did that to our vacuum cleaner at home. Plugged in, just shorted that thing right out. And he just heard it going, and the whole house started to stink like a burning motor. Just shorted out. I can do that when it comes to theology. I'm reading some things, and my mind just goes, and eventually I'm just sitting there staring off at the wall, and I went, just kind of ground to a halt. So when I'm talking time and eternity, the eternality of God, what was God doing before he did? What was he doing in eternity past? What was there in eternity past? Just God in empty space. No, there was no empty space. There was just God. And we go, huh? Okay. So what was out there? Just there wasn't. What we call a universe wasn't. It go. I don't get it, okay? You and I can't do this. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because from the day you were born, a cell, a zygote, multiply, we're growing now. Cell reproduction, meaning one, then two, then four. We're, We're increasing. And we're doing it linearly, not only in time, But we do, like the Bible talks about, line upon line, precept upon precept. We do things in time sequentially. Even my thoughts form sequential patterns. Do you understand? I think this, then I think that. Do the if-thens. And and we're, we're wired that way. We cannot think outside of that. Does that make sense? Because you heard, you, our whole life is progressing that way. Today, tomorrow, the next day, death. Do you understand what I'm saying? We progress through life that way. And so to talk outside of that, we can't do it. It doesn't make sense to a mind that processes this way. All that to say, God then, as he works with us, works with human language. He developed it so that we could talk and put our thoughts together this way. He gave us language. He works 
and helps us as creatures then that way. And creatures then made in his image with intellect and emotion and will, etc., to exercise those, live that way. Now, God's bigger than any of that. Now, what we do when it comes to the problem of evil and suffering is, well, if I was in charge or if I was God, I love people, I wouldn't do that. So how can he do that unless... And if there's an all-powerful God, he could stop it. But since it goes on, there must not be an all-powerful God. We're going to get into this logical problem, syllogisms. A equals B, B equals C, therefore A equals C. God, if God were good, if God were all-powerful, all-powerful would stop it, good would not allow it. But since it exists, there must not either be all-powerful or there must not be all-good. Therefore, there must not be a God. And, and that's the argument of atheism. We're going to get at that next week. But you and I, in order to understand it, need to understand a couple of other things. And that is, here's what I'd like you to read this week. If during your devotional time this week, you would read on the fact, when we talk about these attributes, that God is love, what does that mean? We use expressions to talk about love. Love is an umbrella that under it are terms then. Out of love will come benevolence. Out of love will come grace. Out of love will come mercy and persistent goodness. Or as the Hebrew Bible, chesed, loving kindness. And how then love works. And we'll just touch on that next week in review. But notice how does love work as you get to know another person. But God is not only love, and he's many of these other. He is also sovereign. Interesting English word. I've actually given you a Webster's there. But it means that he is the supreme being, the all-powerful one in the universe, the preeminent above every other thing in the universe. Examples of God's total and continuing sovereignty. Let me just read, he caused the Red Sea to part, the waters to stand. Who does that? The earth to open, the guilty rebels to fall in. He ordered the sun to stand still and everything didn't go into chaos. He created gravity without moving. How did that happen? And even a sundial to go back. He used Deborah and Barak and 10,000 men to defeat multitudinous forces. He gave Gideon 300 men victory over 135,000. He made birds to carry food to Elijah. Can take an iron axe and float it on the water. Lions to sit down with Daniel when they're ravenously hungry. Christ can turn water to an entirely different drink. Wine. He'll raise a man, raise a girl, and raise a widow's son. Feed 5,000 just using a couple of fish, uh, loaves and some fishes, and cause people himself, he can rise from the dead. Okay? And I've given you then different scriptures on the sovereignty of God and examples in the ministry of Jesus of sovereignty, the problem sovereignty faces. Uh, okay, if God's sovereign, then what does it mean to have a free will? How free are we in our wills? How deterministic is he? 
raise that. Oh, by the way, I've got another one. If God already knows what's going to happen, why pray? Okay? When it says, well, prayer changes things. Oh, yeah? So the answer is you have not because you... God took our prayers and he took our prayerlessness into consideration in working that into his plan. Does that make sense? And I real, real deal with that. Now, by the way, the three real popular words that come into play when we talk about sovereignty of God is what we call all or omni-Greek potency, all-powerful, all-present. And what does that mean today when we talk about all-presence, omnipresence? Page 11, all-knowing, all-science, omniscience, and all-knowing God. And what I want to deal with next week then as we start this up is theologians debate whether God's love or His holiness is His greatest or more prominent attribute. Both God's love and His holiness are fundamental attributes of God, and it would be wrong to emphasize one over the other. You will notice something in Scripture. When I look at God, because I am, as we said it, what? Man is, what would it say? Fallen. He's not. He and I... God and you, God and us, we're very different. He's separated from sin and fallenness. The word separated or other than is the Greek word hagios. It's our word holy. Those who are holy, the word is the same Greek word hagios when it's talking about people are called, it's the word saints. But holy, saints, they're all the same Greek word. There is, however, one attribute that is first in the list of things God said about himself. Now, we're talking about self-revelation. When I look at God, what seems to strike out most is his holiness. When men saw God in his splendor, whether it be Isaiah, Ezekiel, or when they would not see him per se, but they would be in the, caught up in the heavens and see things, or John, what's the one thing men always did in the presence of God? What do they do? They do this because he is what? Holy. It's the first thing you recognize. It really is, okay, he is holy. And like he would say to John, what? Do a Get up. Okay? And, or Isaiah, I'm a, an unclean man and dwell in the midst of an unclean people. And I'll read this in close. There is, however, one attribute that is first in the list that God, though, would say about himself. It's interesting and maybe significant that the first attribute God mentioned to Moses, when God talks about himself, he doesn't bring up his holiness. So he says, be holy for I am holy, but in a command, he always says this about himself. I am a God of compassion. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Since it is prominent in God's self-revelation, compassion may be God's preeminent personal attribute. He ascribes to himself. On the other hand, when Moses and the Israelites sang a song of commemorating their victory over the Egyptians, they said, God is majestic in power, majestic in holiness. When we describe him, we talk power and holiness. When he describes himself, he talks love. Does it make sense? And he points that out. 
Whether God's love is more prominent than his other attributes could be debated. I personally believe that there is no one prominent attribute over the others. Though holiness may distinguish God most from you and me. But it is prominent in God's description of himself, and it seems to be foundational for our relationship with him, that he describes himself as a God of love. Which raises the question then, okay, if God is love, then, as I read Nahum and I read Habakkuk, I got a big question. How can there be evil? Why isn't it checked? And why, since the cross, isn't it altered? So let's take that on next week, okay? And Habakkuk actually contains the answer of how God is allowing terrorism today and guerrilla warfare and children to die and evil to exist and tornadoes to happen like last week and these events to happen. How can any good come out of a five- and a three-year-old sister walking down the sidewalk, and a drunk driver leaps the curb and runs them over and drags the five-year-old for two blocks. How can good come out of that? So we'll deal with it next week. In the meantime, thank you for the extra time this evening. Wanted to introduce that. Next week we'll conclude at our regular time at the 10 to 7. Father, thank you for our time this evening. Help us as we here carry on the ministry that you've entrusted to the stewards, your stewards, every one of us in this room as your stewards responsible to you to do the work making a difference in this area around the world until Jesus comes. We pray in Jesus' name.